All right, hello, and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk to the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Koops, and today I'm very excited to bring back repeat guest Chris Fox. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me, Nathan. Good to see you. <laughs> Um, Chris was on in a previous episode. Um, we were chatting a little bit about his uh, nonfiction series, the Write Faster, Write Smarter series. And I am currently in the middle of enjoying his most recent offering in that series, uh, Plot Gardening. So um, Chris has, has graciously come on the show to, to tell us a little bit more about his, his book. And, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about plotting and structure and cool stuff like that. So... Um, Chris, can you tell, first off, thank you so much for being here, and then um, could you tell people a little bit about plot gardening and what this book is all about? Sure. So I was uh, trying to, to come up with, a, I guess, a, a hybrid approach between pantsing, writing by the, the seat of your pants, and mm -hmm. plotting, because what I've kind of found over the last few years is, while I do really enjoy story structure and I want to be able to outline things meticulously, and, and mm -hmm. I do write faster books when I'm doing that, I kind of took a little bit too far, and I felt like it was squeezing some of the creativity out of it. Mm. And so I wanted to come back to a process that kind of rewarded my creativity, um, but also still let me use the story structures that I had sort of come to learn over the last few years. Interesting. And um, you came up with the, the kind of the, the metaphor of gardening, and you've kind of uh, tied this into this story and, and the details and, and you know, your chapter headings and things like that. What for you made the connection there or why did you kind of choose that metaphor as your as your way of structuring this book so uh, the most hated pantser in the world i think at this point is george r, r. martin <laughs> george r, r. martin um uh, he was being razzed in a university lecture by brandon mm -hmm. sanderson brandon mm -hmm. sanderson was saying essentially that george r. r martin is a gardener and he just sort of waits around to see sort of what springs up in his garden and that he was an architect, so he would actually, mm. you know, architect the entire structure of his story and make sure it was all laid out, and then he could sit mm -hmm. down and write it. Yeah. Um, and I realized that that makes it a very binary equation, that mm. it's either you're a gardener or you're, you know, sort of a plotter architect, mm -hmm. and that felt wrong to me. And so when I decided to do this analogy, I'm like, well, it's really kind of both. So I'm going to borrow from that analogy, and okay. everything that I'm going to do is going to have to do with gardening. So um, I liken it to... If you've got a garden and that's what your book is going to be, the soil is your world building and all of the information you're kind of gradually putting in there about the characters in the world mm -hmm. and the cool little events that you're thinking of. Um, the seeds are the main characters, the point of view characters that are going to be a part of your story. And then if you think of the outline as sort of like a guide pole, you know how plants will grow, grow mm -hmm. up and plant in the garden, that's, that's yeah. sort of how it all plays together. So you still got that creativity of you're going to put your characters in this garden and you don't know what they're going to look like when they start springing up out of that soil, but mm -hmm. you have some ideas about the direction they're going to go and that's sort of what your outline does. So mm -hmm. I like that analogy made it really easy for me to keep both the creative side and the organized side in, in such a way that people can relate to it. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, ways you can go into that analogy and, and have it work just because gardening is a lot of work. <laughs> it's There's a lot of ways for it to go wrong too. And um, as I'm sure you could you kind of mine that analogy for a lot. And I've been enjoying the way you've been uh, approaching it in the book. I've uh, some pretty, uh, pretty amusing anecdotes from readers because I'm not a gardener myself. I've yeah. only gardened once or twice in my life and I've yeah. gotten a few things wrong apparently about gardening. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I believe it. We've I've had some poor luck with gardening in my life, so I can I can relate to that. Um, 
So you talked about one of the first things you mentioned here was world building, and I think that's something that you do incredibly well. Um, oh, we had a quick comment. Dave says, "Please tell me if that's a Firefly T-shirt." What do you? <laughs> what does it say? I can't see the butt flop. <laughs> the very first episode of Firefly where Wash, the pilot, is yeah. playing with toy dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the shirt, uh, which Lisa bought me, by the way, yeah. <laughs> is from Firefly. That's an excellent wife gift. She, she understands you well. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so, um, tangent from Dave, but well, well, well deserved. Um, can we, so yeah, talk to, talk to us a little bit more about world building. So like I said, you are someone who, uh, creates very imaginative, very complex worlds. And, um, this is something, this is kind of your bread and butter a little bit with your fiction. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by laying this soil of world building and, and how you go about doing that? Yeah, so I, I have an unfair advantage in that as a kid, I was introduced at a very young age to Dungeons and Dragons. And so what you're doing in all of these game sessions when you're playing with your friends is you're creating a shared world where mm -hmm. um, each of you is contributing to this experience and then in your free time you're kind of thinking about this world and trying to imagine what it would like you know be like to live there and, and what the people who live there are like and what the customs are like mm -hmm. and so as i grew up i continued to kind of refine how i do that so i'm always asking myself why i watch a ton of documentaries because i want to know how stuff works and that's the essence of world building is simply understanding what the world that you're writing is and what differentiates it from other worlds. And it's not necessarily just science fiction and fantasy where you mm -hmm. have spaceships or a particular type of magic. If you're writing romance um, and, and you have a very specific locale that you know better than anybody else, maybe that's the Alaskan wilderness, which you wouldn't even think of as being a good romantic spot, but you in some way are able to bring that to life because you know it better than anybody else. That kind of world building really strengthens the backbone of the story, I think, in any, any genre. Mm. What are some ways you see people getting world building wrong, or like forgetting that step and then trying to create a story? Where do, where's the what kind of problems do you see if people don't lay that foundation first? Uh, th this comes back to you know my, my teenage years in, in D and D. One of mm. the things that I learned when I was the game master, the person that was running these games, mm. you, you let your players decide what decisions they're going to make, and so they'll do things you would never in a million years expect. Mm -hmm. And it, taught me to think differently and really what I learned is that someone is going to exploit this to its logical conclusion. So if you create an ability in a setting, you had better understand what the economic ramifications would be. So for example, if there's a magic in your world that lets you turn invisible and or walk through walls, mm -hmm. then one of the first things that people are going to do is rob banks. Right. So if you're a bank, then you're going to need magical security. So all of a sudden now you've got magical security firms, which is going yeah. to lead to magical collection agencies. and you know, also yeah. that. So you, as a, a, a kind of a creator, need to look at whatever piece you add into your your setting. What are the long term ramifications of that? The whole setting. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I enjoy about the introduction to your book that I was uh, reading so far was um, you, you get into when you talk about this world building a little bit. You 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 introduce the idea of how much thought goes into your worlds and sometimes that you may have this idea but you may put it aside for a little while and just sort of let it percolate and um some i think some people have the misconception that when you just sit down to write you just sit down and blank page and stuff just flows but i was happy to find that in your book you address the fact that sometimes you need to take some time to really think this stuff out and um how important is that to you like your your thought process before you even ever start writing how much you spend time in this world mentally. 
even now, I've got um, 16 novels in print and like 29 books total um, mm-hmm. across a whole bunch of different genres. I still need a long time to get a book right. So the example that I use in plot gardening is called The Dark Lord Burt. Mm-hmm. And I have a video series about this character and about sort of how I brainstormed it. And the first video went up five months ago, and the series isn't done. So I'll probably be creating one or two more videos. And so you sort of get to see organically, it takes me six, seven months to figure out all these ideas. And I haven't sat down really to write word one of the story yet. So mm. the time that I spend percolating and thinking about it, I mean, that is really, really important. And it's why I think we all have at least one friend who said for the last 20 years, I'm writing a book. <laughs> the the mm. reason they're not sitting down to, to finish writing their book is they're still in that world-building phase and are still, still trying phase. to assemble kind of all that information. And I, I do think it's critical. Yeah, it is. Some, I can't be taken too far. I know my first book took, took me four years to write, and I, a lot of that was just me sitting thinking or just letting it wander around in my head. We had a comment from Kay that says, Chris is difficult to hear. I'm not sure if everyone's experiencing that difficulty, but um, I don't know if there's any... Uh, microphone issues on your end, but I, I can hear you fine, so I don't know if anyone else is having that issue, but if they are, please please comment. Um, and I'm sorry, Kay, if you're having difficulty with, with, with the audio, but we'll speak up. Um, uh, so, okay, so you, you talk about your world building, and I, obviously, I, you said the seeds to this process are your characters. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, Sean uh, says, also very quiet, so I'm not sure what's going on there, but um, anyway, can you talk a little bit about the seeds... Headset off and seeing if that's any better. Can you guys hear me any better now? We'll find we'll find out in just a second. Um, but while we're while we're dealing with that issue, can can you tell us a little bit about this, this sort of characters as seeds idea? Sure. Um, so every character, every person is is going to be different in their own unique ways. Um, but when observed from the outside by another person, typically that character boils down to five or six labels your brain has created. So when you see somebody, you may look at them and say gorgeous, you may say fat, you may say tall, you may say um, ugly, you may say old, you may say athletic, intimidating. There's all these Mm. little labels that our our brains will generate. And effectively what they're doing is looking to previous experiences that we've had and then sort of riffing off that. So Mm. the example that I used recently in an article I wrote, um, it's about... identifying something that somebody already knows and then building on it. If they already have an intimidating character in their life and you describe somebody as intimidating, they're going to back to that. You have to teach them what a grapefruit is. You might start by telling them what, you know, it's like an orange but bigger. And so anybody who knows what an orange is, they already know about citrus, they already know about a rind, they already have to peel it. Um, All these details come baked in. And so getting back to characters, that's exactly what you want to try to achieve is when you're writing give them bits of information that will cause them to generate a certain label. So if you show a character being cruel, mm. right off the bat they're going to think, man, this guy's a dick sock, and I'm going to put that dick sock label on this character. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm glad to say that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure so. Um, Sean says, uh, Nathan is fine. Chris's audio is as if his mic is on the other side of the room. Um, can just hear. Maybe we can try um, some earbuds or something like that and try maybe a different microphone see if that helps. I don't know if that, that's an option for you. Um, microphone number three. <laughs> we'll see if that works. And uh, let's see if we can't fix fix some of our, our uh, sound issues. For and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll add captions to this later as well so people will be able to read along. Um, one of the things that you kind of touched on a little bit about, like kind of presenting ways for people to understand your characters without, 
um, necessarily, like giving them things to relate to. Could you talk a little bit about kind of the idea between tropes and cliches? Like how do you, how do you kind of use something in your writing to describe a character, like you're saying, without it falling into the realm of cliche? I know you bring up cliche a lot. You've been dealing with that because you've been uh, delving into it with a, with your story. But uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how to avoid negative cliches? Yeah, so um, a trope is just a simple, you know, bite-sized um, story cliche. Uh, mm. So whenever I say trope, that's all I mean. Um, mm. So maybe you have something that is like Hermione Granger is a know-it-all. Mm. Um, typically what I'll do to soften a character, if you're, you're using a trope like that that everybody's going to recognize, um, is you give the character something unexpected. So, for example, I have a character in my Magitech Chronicles. His name is Sergeant Cruz. He's really large and beefy and scary. He's a drill sergeant, mm-hmm. but he loves to cook. Okay. Um, and he likes a few other esoteric things like history that have nothing to do with war. You wouldn't expect something like that from him. And so when you see this tough-talking sergeant suddenly start discussing you know, how to make soup, um, people find him more relatable. And, and mm. that, I think, makes people real because real people aren't stereotypes. We may appear to be that way on the surface, especially during a first meeting. But as you begin to, um, to peer a little bit underneath that and get to know people a little bit deeper, um, you're typically going to see some details that don't line up with that trope. Um, if you tend to give somebody all the same characteristics that are fitting of that, like, you know, you're making them like they're, they're an action hero with no depth, mm. um, then you're going to run into some, some sort of, um, like, I guess a disengagement from fans. They're, they're not going to buy into that identity. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Um, in your, in your book, you also talk about some differences in the way that you view flaws. I know, uh, oftentimes we, uh, hear about the idea of the, the hero having this particular character flaw that they're overcoming, um, but you go into some detail about different ways that you can kind of approach that idea of a flaw. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the ways that you've kind of broadened that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm borrowing this from John Truby. Um, he originally broke flaws into categories, which I think is brilliant, and mm. I don't know for whatever reason, even being a, a gamer, this never occurred to me to do, but he puts them into separate buckets because there are different types of flaws. And, and what I've come to learn is different audiences will resonate with different flaws. Mm. So you have physical flaws, um, which are exactly what they sound like. Um, you know, maybe somebody is disabled physically. Maybe they are very young. Maybe they are very old. Mm. Um, maybe they're just weak and not a very good fighter. They haven't learned yet, and, and that's important to the setting they're in. But in some way, they are limited in what they're able to do. And so they have some sort of... of perceivable flaw, like Harry Potter is an example that, that John uses, and I, I borrowed from that. Harry Potter is 10 at the beginning of the series, and so he can't make his own decisions because he's, he's just a kid. Yeah. Um, there are also mental flaws, uh, and mental flaws are, are, are also grouped into psychological flaws. So if you think of the traditional ones, this is, is really the, you know, the, the tropey example. Um, alcoholics, mm-hmm. uh, people with drug addictions, people with you know crippling fears, uh, you know, be it spiders or, or anything else. Those are all examples of mental flaws. Uh, And then finally, he also added the concept of uh, moral flaws Mm. was the last one. Um, And uh, a moral flaw is something that is perceived to be wrong in the society. So, I mean, it's hard to say whether something is wrong or isn't wrong. But the question really in terms of whether or not this is a flaw is would it be perceived as a flaw in the society where the story is taking place? You know, if slavery is totally accepted and this character believes wholeheartedly in slavery, then that's not nearly as much of a, as a flaw as if, you know, we're, we're talking about gone with the wind when mm. everything hinges on the line with the Civil War and your stance on slavery is going to determine everything. Right, yeah, and then, of course it falls back into your, you know, bottom layer of world building and understanding your world 
and you know keeping that consistent as you were saying earlier so um we can see how that all fits together um i know that you're um a proponent of dan Harmon's story circle and as i am as well and how do you kind of incorporate some of those ideas into your you know character flaw issues and how they sort of evolve as characters throughout your your plot um, so Dan Harbin, for those that don't know, is is the creator of Rick and Morty and the TV show Community. Um, and these are both short form- format shows. They're 22-minute episodes. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing is creating a system by which you can have each character grow a little bit in that 22-minute format. So, excuse me, you've, you've sort of got this abbreviated uh, plot growth. And, and you can extrapolate that outward on a larger scale, especially if you're looking at the, the Joseph Campbell source material that mm-hmm. um, here with A Thousand Faces. Um, and the idea is you're, you're taking characters on the same type of journey that has been popular in fiction going all the way back to the dawn of time for as, you know, as far back as we have stories um, in every society really in the world. There's some form of mythology that, that harkens back to this, and you're distilling it in the same way. So you're taking a modern retelling of this where you have a character that is coming of age or becoming a hero or whatever your story is, you're going to walk them through this circle, and they're going to have to hit certain notes in the same way. So the story will be different. But they'll, they'll hit uh, certain milestones along the way that are going to be familiar, that will resonate with the audience. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, you'll see the character become someone that they were not in the beginning of the story and are able to solve some sort of story problem that you presented at the beginning. So the example that is most often thrown around is Luke Skywalker at the beginning of Star Wars. Uh, no training as a Jedi, no ability to fly an X-Wing, none of that stuff. Right. Goes through all of his trials, descends into the underworld, fights the Empire, rescues the princess, comes back out, blows up the Death Star. Um, yeah. You know, same with the Matrix, where you've, you've got the one Neo in the beginning, where you know he's coming full circle at the end, and now he can fight those agents. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of your goal with uh, Dan Harmon's story circle. Mm-hmm. How do you apply that towards antagonists? I tend to give them an identical story uh, circle. The difference is I usually give it a tragic end. Mm-hmm. So you want the hero to be somebody at the end um, that they were in the beginning. And in the case of the villain, when I say hero, I'm, I'm referring to the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, this can be they learn a painful lesson. Maybe they live and their whole scheme is destroyed and either they're angry at the hero or maybe they turn over a new leaf and, and they become you know, a hero in the rough right. Mm-hmm. You get to choose what direction your antagonist is growing in. And ultimately, if you give them a very similar character or can you have them follow their own story circle... Uh, fans will like that antagonist typically a lot more than they otherwise would. You're, you don't have some bland, um, you know, evil overlord who's doing things for reasons we can't fathom. You see somebody growing and changing, and mm. the things he's doing while evil are happening because um, that antagonist believes they're the right thing. Right, and it makes them you know much more relatable, and instead of being cardboard cutouts of of uh, nefarious villains, you know, um, <laughs> twirling the mustache. Yeah, exactly. Um, for anyone viewing, uh, we welcome comments. Anyone who has specific questions for Chris, especially regarding plot or structure, definitely go ahead and shoot those up in the comments, and we will um, answer them as best we can. Or if you're watching the replay, I always encourage uh, people to answer, ask questions anyway. Uh, feel free to tag Chris or myself in the comments if you have questions for us. And uh, since a lot of people are watching this replay after it's gone live, um, please you know, just feel free to continue to ask those questions, and we'll try to answer them in the comments as best we can. But um, um, so we talked a little bit about your characters and, and your um, and your antag- antagonists and things like that. You also talked about sort of the the plot structure. You said like the poles of, of how how we shape these characters around the plot. What are some of the key elements of, of 
plot that are not necessarily character-based? Anything else that, that you use as part of your structure um, that's not specifically character-based? There are a lot of different types of structure that you can pick. So if you are writing a romance, for example, you're probably going to want to have a happily ever after. Mm. That's a convention of the romance um, genre. You know, break that at your own peril. You certainly don't want an axe murderer you know, bursting at the end and killing a love interest. You know, yeah. you want Mr. and Mrs. Wright or Mr. and yeah. Mr. Wright or whatever you're writing mm. uh, to get together at the end. That's the, the goal of what you're writing. You know, fans mm. kind of have expectations coming in. Yeah. And so which structure you're picking really is dependent on your genre. If you're doing mm. um, science fiction, fantasy, action, adventure, thrillers, you're probably going to go with the hero's journey because that, that gives you the right plot points that you're trying to hit. Mm. What's your advice? I'm sorry, I kind of lost the connection there just for a second. didn't hear that you were still continuing. Feel free to continue. Sure, I'm saying if you, if you were writing horror, then, then you're, you're certainly not required to have a hero's journey mm. uh, the simple act of surviving can be enough for the character in that so it, it's all about knowing what your genre is and, and hitting the right conventions accordingly gotcha um quick question um for those authors who are not writing on a specific genre or they're sort of finding themselves straddling the line of uh genres what is your advice for people um who are tr kind of writing cross genre maybe they're just writing a story that they really love to tell and they're not necessarily, they didn't write it to market, for example. What are some ways for them to kind of still navigate that line? Uh, do you have any advice for them? I do. All you have to do is figure out the genre that it's closest to, mm. where the fans who pick this book up are going to enjoy it. So if it's mm. people that really like thrillers, um, I, my very first series has a werewolf on the cover, which was a terrible mistake because uh, mm. it angles it at horror audiences. And I really should have been aiming at thriller. So if I had done a different cover, I probably would have saw a lot more traction on that book. So as a cross-genre book, just make sure you know kind of who the audience in question is and try to get the cover to look like that. And then also add whatever elements are present that, that make it not normally fit in that genre. So mm -hmm. that at a glance, readers can say, oh, this is a thriller, but maybe it's got some sci-fi in this way. And so that'll draw their attention. Mm-hmm. You also offer, in addition to this book, which I think is fantastic, that you also offer some um, YouTube videos that kind of accompany this. And then even as we're reading along the book, with the book, I know you're, you're always great at having the reader do exercises and things like that. One of them is uh, points, points us towards your video series. Um, can you tell people a little about your, your video series that goes along with this and kind of what people can learn from, from that in addition to the book? Yeah, what I found is that a lot of readers getting things in one format is not often enough. You need to hear it two or three different ways and see it in different ways. And so I've recorded mm. a series of videos called How to Plot Your Novel from Scratch that go hand-to-hand -hand with the book. Mm. Um, and you can go check those out, and you can actually see my screen, see Scrivener, download the file if you want, um, and mess around with it and see how I'm using the system that I'm proposing to, to write a book. So mm -hmm. it gives you that hands-on stuff so you can see my homework assignments to know that you know I actually did this work too. And <laughs> yeah, where's the best place for people to find those, those videos and that information? Uh, chrisfoxwrites.com or you can go to YouTube slash chrisfoxwrites and that's my channel. Um, we are very proud. We just passed a million views on the channel. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, one of the things I wanted to say, just um, I really appreciate how much of a giver you are to the community. I feel like as an, as one of the, you're one of the authors in the community who has just been so generous with your knowledge and your time and the information that you put out and all these books are obviously the results of your you know, blood, sweat, and tears, and the hard lessons you've learned over the course of uh, various novels you've written. But um, I personally very much appreciate 
the way that you share so much of this content in different formats and uh, for all of the rest of the community. And I'm sure um, many people will, you know, second that. And, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's just a lot of content that you provide. It's, it's fantastic. So um, I'd love to talk a little bit more in depth. Like you said, you, you can go into the book and obviously see some of these things. And, um, but I'd love to talk a little bit about your sort of scene-by-scene structure of kind of how you say you're approaching a scene like in your in your outlining. Let's let's say we're we're plotting, we're outlining. What are some of the things that do you do individual beats? Like how are you structuring your story before you ever start writing it? So I, I would typically write a description of the overall story as best I can. Okay. Um, and I'll try to figure out what is this epic ending going to be? What am I building up towards? Mm-hmm. And then I'll figure out where my characters start at the beginning of the book, and I'll sort of try to connect the dots. Like how okay. would they get from where they start to this epic ending that I've crafted? Okay. And every decision that I'm making there on is building on it, where I'll realize, okay, there's got to be more action, so I'm going to have to build some action scenes. What kind of conflict would arrive, arise naturally out of the story? And I'll okay. think about my various characters and what they want and, and how those things can conflict. And then I'll use that to come up with the appropriate scenes. And, and this harkens back a little bit to genre. Um, the type of scenes that I have are going to flow based on that genre. So if I'm writing something more Michael Bay, I've got lots of explosions. There's all, mm. all sorts of space battles. Um, I know that going in, and I'm going to have more active, more action scenes. Whereas if I'm writing more of a mystery, I'm going to have more reaction scenes. Um, and then ultimately probably a couple of reveal scenes that are sprinkled throughout the plot. Um, and it's going to be a little bit more introspective, uh, and, and I'm going to write that accordingly. But, mm-hmm. but really, it's it, it's examining the story structure as a whole, looking at what you're going for, and then plotting scenes accordingly. So in advance, are you laying out, okay, I need this many action scenes, but I want to give sort of a reaction scene as a break? Do you sort of go through in advance of writing and think, okay, well, this is a lot of action in a row. I need to maybe try to give the readers a break pacing-wise. How are you doing that? I tend to do a three-in-one ratio where I'll do like hmm. three action scenes to a, a reaction scene okay. um, and no more than that. Occasionally, it'll go a little bit longer. Uh, I go with the rule that I need to make sure I've got some sort of fight or action in the first five chapters of the book. Hmm. Something needs to occur right off the bat because my audience needs to see that. If they don't, they'll move on. Right. Um, but beyond that, a lot of it is very organic. Hmm. So, um, so you've written a sort of general description of the overall book. You've sort of laid out some of the action versus reaction scenes. And when you're getting into individual um, chapters, are you doing? Are you a multiple scene per chapter person, or are you a one scene per chapter person? You have a I'm a one scene per chapter person. I do what I call potato chip chapters. Hmm. Um, I feel like giving natural breaks to the reader allows them to read as much as they want and just stop. So yeah. uh, a thousand to twelve hundred words is, is the length of my typical chapter. They're super hmm. short, uh, which fans really seem to, to like. Interesting. Okay. And um, any other tips for pacing um, besides action versus reaction? Any other tips you have for for pacing your novel? Yeah, it, it's about setups and payoffs. Um, mm. You need to make sure that any big payoff that you're putting in the second half of the book is automatic, or not automatically, but is uh, adequately set up in the first half of the book. So, you know, it's the old adage, if you've got a gun in the first act of a, a book, it needs to be fired in the third act. Right. Um, I try to make sure I'm doing as much of that as possible, and then anything that's not doing that, if I don't have a setup or a payoff, I ask myself the hard question, why is this in the book? How does this contribute to the overall scene and, and if there's something that's that's cool there but isn't really relevant to the plot can I strip it out and add it to a scene that does address one of these setups or payoffs that are so critical mm. and, and then I tend to go with those 
Okay, interesting. Um, what are some of the things that you would say, like if you had, the, like, there's a lot of books out there on outlining. Um, I was actually in the middle of reading another good book on outlining by Scott King at this, and when I picked up yours, I'm like, well, but I had talked to you and you're like, well, you know what, I'm doing some things a little bit differently here. Um, for those interested in your book, what are some things that you would say that you've done a little bit differently um, when it comes to uh, outlining in general that is kind of new to, to the writing space? Uh, I don't know that it's new necessarily. I'm, I'm sure that there are some books that have, that have covered this stuff, but mm. I tend to do plot branching, okay. which is I'll look at a, a part of my plot that I think is going to go a certain way, mm-hmm. and then I will force myself to envision at least two other ways that it could go. Like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And maybe that's the hero gets killed. I mean, I okay. consider some really off-the-wall things. So, like, for example, going back to Star Wars, as I so often do, what if Luke had been killed instead of Obi-Wan when they had been on the Death Star, and how would that have changed the plot? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And the act of doing this kind of branching forces me to consider things in such a way that oftentimes I'll come up with changes that'll influence the, the plot in a very positive way. So a lot of them won't work, but mm. every once in a while you'll hit on a plot branch that'll modify your main plot and make it far better. So that's one of the things that I do. And then the other... Um, I don't know how uncommon this is. I have to imagine a lot of writers do this, but I do now discovery writing where I'll tend to put in exactly one day on a project as soon as I've got you know a very, very rough draft of an outline mm-hmm. just so I can sort of start thinking in that character's voice and then I'll stop and I won't go back to that for you know two, three, four weeks. But during that time, I'll be thinking from the point of view of the character and because I've done that discovery writing, I, I'm sort of building that identity in my mind. Interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, because you, you do something which I haven't done too much of is I, I, I'm, most of my series is all in one point of view, one perspective, mm-hmm. um, and I've only got one series where I've got multiple points of view. Um, do you have any advice for people writing authentic characters in different kind of voices and how to make sure that while you're structuring this um, multi-point of view book that you... Um, get them all to sound differently and, and uh, make sure that people understand that that's a different character and how, how, you, how do you approach that? Uh, I do age and upbringing. So how hmm. old is this person and how are they raised? And okay. then I try to look for somebody in my real life that fits that. So um, I have an aunt who is very fastidious and grew up sort of in high society in New York, um, like in the 50s and 60s. And so the way that she acts and the way that she moves and the way that she speaks and the way that she does her nails are all all radically, radically different from a different you know, and, and she's got like 17 hummingbird feeders around her property that she loves to go out every day and mess with and her hair is a frizzy mess and so I, I think about each of these people and then I present the character accordingly to be more like somebody who I'm sort of aiming for and both of those really arise out of the, that person's education and their upbringing you know, mm. how they speak, what words they choose to use, those are going to mm-hmm. vary based on location and education um, and gender and, you know, time period. All these things are factors. That's really interesting. I think that's, that's a great tip. So thank you. Um, any other tips or tidbits you want to share before we kind of come up on the half hour here? Um, any other um, advice for people just starting out, trying to figure out what the advantages are of of plotting versus pantsing? Uh, any any last-minute tips for for writers yes commit to reading five books on craft none mm. of them have to be mine they can be from anybody that you want anything that looks good just pick five and read them 
and you don't have to do anything these books say, but if you're mm -hmm. at least aware of how story structure works, then you can mm -hmm. choose whether to use it or not. Um, and I, I promise you it won't constrain your creativity. You're still going to be able to write great books. No one's going to force you to write an outline. But that additional knowledge about story structure is invaluable. I think that's excellent advice. Uh, you have to kind of know the rules before you can break them, and um, it's yeah, it's good to know what you're what you're dealing with. There's a lot behind the scenes, as as this episode has revealed. There's a lot that goes into a book and a story structure. It's not just necessarily willy nilly writing from the seat of your pants, like we said. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're you're always very busy, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat with us today. Anytime. I enjoy it. I, I know you and I know the other people that frequent the channel. So uh, it's nice to see you guys. Yeah. All right. And uh, like I said, anyone else who has additional questions for us, if you're watching the replay, feel free to shoot up some questions, uh, tag us in the comments, and we'll be happy to, to pop back on and, and answer questions as we can. So uh, thanks for watching, everyone, and we'll see you next week.